first of all, ladies, thank you so much for your patience. I realize it has been a month since our last episode, once again due to the legitimate demands of motherhood and married life, and I sincerely appreciate your support of my vocation and of my family. Today we are reading from the Council of Chalcedon in 451 AD. We are looking at two paragraphs here, um, which are actually canons 15 and 16. Quote, no woman under 40 years of age is to be ordained a deacon, and then only after close scrutiny. If after receiving ordination and spending some time in the ministry, she despises God's grace and gets married, such a person is to be anathematized along with her spouse. Also, it is not permitted for a virgin who has dedicated herself to the Lord God, or similarly for a monk, to contract marriage. If it is discovered that they have done so, let them be made excommunicate. However, we have decreed that the local bishop should have discretion to deal humanely with them. End quote. So, fun stuff here today. History lessons are in order and I am not qualified to teach them. But as I said in my intro episode to this reading series, we are going to be learning together. So, I am linking to three sources in the description of this episode. Those sources being the Catholic Encyclopedia, EWTN, and Canon Law Made Easy. And then in the blog post accompanying this episode, there's also a screenshot of brief clarifications coming from multiple Catholic sources in a single short exchange. And it is from these sources that I have drawn the following comments to share with all of you. Regarding the first excerpt, which is Canon 15 listed in the document provided on papalencyclicals.net from the Council of Chalcedon in 451 AD, if I understand correctly what I am reading, um, the understanding of the role to which was applied the Greek term, which has been translated into deaconess, is not terribly detailed um, in those writings which are available to us from the early church. However, there are three things I wish to highlight for my audience. Firstly, that if there were instances of women leading assemblies of the faithful in the manner of men that once found out these were not permitted to continue, meaning that this was a liberty taken in error. The role of a female, what was referred to as deaconess or is translated as such, is not the equivalent of what we know to be a male deacon. Second, that as muddy as the historical documentation is, one thing which is very clear from the little that we know of this role in the early church is that it was a role intended to preserve the decency of women, specifically in the rite of baptism, because at that time the entire body was immersed in water and anointed with oil. And so this role for women was created both to minister and to protect other women in this physically vulnerable situ situation. Now, in so doing, in ministering to women receiving the rite of baptism, these deaconesses were not conferring the rite of baptism. They were simply involved in this particular portion of the rite. History also notes that as there were less adult baptisms, because infant baptism became the norm in a Christian society, the role of being assigned to minister to adult women in the rite of baptism also dwindled away. 
Thirdly, that the role which most closely represents what was previously referred to as deaconess is the current role of the mother abbess. And again, this is a role which, which exists today. We know and understand this role. So if we focus on this third point, it can make many things very clear. Mother Abbess is consecrated. She is set aside. She has a position of authority over other consecrated religious and those who work and serve with them. But she is not ordained in the manner of a priest. Mother Abbess does not function as a sort of female priest. We know and understand this. So again, this is me, layperson, laywoman, at that, doing some quick research. I am not a historian. Uh, so if there's something that um, I missed or if you feel that I misspoke in any way, please do feel free to bring that to my attention and I will express my gratitude in advance. Thank you. So now let's go to that second paragraph. This is Canon 16 from the same document. And again, that was, quote, it is not permitted for a virgin who has dedicated herself to the Lord God or similarly for a monk to contract marriage. If it is discovered that they have done so, let them be made excommunicate. However, we have decreed that the local bishop should have some discretion to deal humanely with them, end quote. And if you're hearing background noises, this is my baby playing with a measuring tape. Um, this one is considerably easier to treat in some ways, maybe not in others. Uh, it is no small thing when a woman who has taken final vows in a religious order, or a brother who has done the same, or a priest, um, it is no small thing to turn away from these vows. In the case of married priests, it's important to know the context. For example, Anglican priests who are married and convert to Catholicism may pursue the Catholic priesthood. If they were unmarried at the time of conversion, then should they pursue the Roman Catholic priesthood, they are bound to celibacy uh, moving forward. In the Eastern Lung of the Church, and again, please forgive me if I have not got this quite right, it is my understanding that married men are permitted to become priests as a secondary vocation, but already ordained priests are not permitted to marry. And then there are some rare cases where a widower receives a call to the priesthood and as such embraces a life of celibacy moving forward, but it is obviously um, you know, they still have, they still have children, right? They're still a father from their marriages. So you may have very well encountered Catholic priests, both within the Roman Rite and the Eastern Rite, who are or have been married for one of these reasons. However, what is not possible in, is this notion of discerning out of lifelong vows already made. Perpetual vows, also called final vows, are well, final. <laughs> That's why they're called final vows. For religious sisters and brothers, there is a period between temporary vows and final vows where it is still perfectly possible that they may be called elsewhere. And that is a significant period of time to allow for that possibility. But once final vows are made, they are final. Some of you know someone who claims to be an ex-priest or an ex-religious sister or brother who had made final or perpetual vows and then all of a sudden they left because they supposedly discerned out. There have been some very public figures, unfortunately, reaching some sort of celebrity status who are examples of this. There was a religious sister in Italy recently who uh, competed in The Voice uh, some years ago and had, had made perpetual vows and she supposedly left them. So she is no longer living 
as a sister. This is not supportable to say it, I guess, sort of kind of gently. Final or perpetual vows are the vows up against which uh, they will be judged at the end of their life. Priests cannot be unordained. They can be defrocked. They can be laicized for, for various reasons, mostly safety reasons. If we have a priest against whom credible allegations of sexual misconduct have been made, then it is in the interest of everyone, right, that they not be permitted to continue to minister to the congregation given their history. But that does not cancel out their ordination. Uh, it does not permit them to pursue a vocation of marriage. It is not possible for a termed ex-priest to enter into a valid marriage within the church. That's actually not possible, which to some of you may sound terrible. Families are, are beautiful things. New life, children are beautiful, wonderful things. But children suffer for the infidelity of their parents, and that is not something that can be circumvented. And God, yes, of course, understands human weakness, and he is a God of mercy and forgiveness. Yes, all of that is true. And he is also a God of justice. You know, when you use the words merciful and a God of forgiveness, consider that God cannot be merciful without also being just. He cannot be known as a God of forgiveness without the reality of grave transgressions. If he is a God of forgiveness, it is because there are grave transgressions which need forgiveness. If he is merciful, it is because there is a justice which is severe. And the consequences of sin are far-reaching. I restarted the Bible in a Year podcast this year. I failed miserably at it last year. But this year, as I record this podcast, I am only one day behind, praise the good Lord. Um, but, you know, Father Mike talks about the Israelites having to wander 40 years in the desert because of their unfaithfulness and their fear, their refusal to fight to take the promised land. And that is the war for each and every one of us is that grace is promised, grace is given in abundance, but we refuse to respond, we refuse to fight for it. What I want to highlight here is that Father Mike further comments that because the Israelites refused to fight to take the land that was promised to them, that it then fell to their children to fight the battles that their parents refused to fight. And that their children's lives were made that much harder because each of us is made for our own battles, that we are called to fight in our own time. And to have to fight the battles of their parents because of their parents' weakness and infidelity on top of those battles, which were properly theirs in their own day and in their own age, is truly a tragedy. It is a sobering thought as a parent. Um, it's a terrifying reality. The terrifying reality for children of supposedly ex-religious, again, following ordination or final slash perpetual vows, is that their parents are not able to enter into valid marriages within the church because they already have spouses to whom they have made vows. Religious sisters are espoused to Christ himself, right? A priest's vow of celibacy is in order to serve the bride of Christ with his whole self, with nothing reserved for himself, because all that is for him is to be another Christ. I would invite you all to pray for those consecrated religious who are struggling to remain faithful in their vows. I don't think that we think of them very much unless we personally know someone who is struggling, but it's not unlike the struggles that we have in marriage. <laughs> also, if you do know someone, to exhort them to remain faithful, to exhort them to fight, and to do everything good in your power as a friend. 
to support them in the good fight, to respond to God's grace, that we may prevail with him for his greater glory. Again, their struggle is not so different, is not so other, um, is not so unrecognizable to us as married persons. We also struggle with faithfulness to our, to our human spouses. So with that said, let's offer our struggles as married persons to stay faithful to our vows for the struggles of those religious who are having trouble um, staying faithful to theirs.